This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, To another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest-running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who got a lot of projections right last year and maybe a few wrong. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, as always, is my co-host and partner in projection projects, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. So glad to have you back with us. And yes, it is that wonderful time of the year where we hold ourselves accountable on this episode when we look back at all the projections we made going into the 2019-20 season and pulling no punches on how we did. So we're gonna we're gonna highlight a lot of the misses this show, but trust that there were also hits that we'll also try and get to today or in our next show. Uh, and I can't wait to do it. And I think I was righter than you were. Have we actually gotten, have we, have we touched base with fantasy ref yet to see how we did? Brian, it doesn't matter. You know, you and I are a team and we win as a team and we lose as a team. It doesn't matter so I who's did better. better. I don't okay. know. I didn't check. Uh, hey, want to know one cool uh, projection that we got right just off the bat? Yeah. Connor McDavid, you projected 123 points. I projected 125 points. He pays for 124. We nailed Connor McDavid, our highest projection. So we basically won, and the rest is just gravy. Yeah, yeah. If you get Connor McDavid right, that's an automatic win. That's like winning the full fast track prize, just right. going straight to tier one. You know, like, uh, it, you, you need a really fancy and deep fantasy hockey podcast to tell you that Connor McDavid is going to be really good, and we were those people last year. We gave you the goods. But yeah, we also did get a few things wrong. So we're going to go through. That's the plan for today. I've made this really big spreadsheet of all of our projections, and then what the actual results were, and then I've ranked everyone by how, what the percentage difference, and then I picked out some of the interesting names that we can go through. If you want to look at this uh, crazy spreadsheet, by the way, Patreon will have access because patrons have access to our show notes every week where I link to the spreadsheet. So uh, just a quick plug, keepingcarls.com slash patron, one of the many perks that we give out. But okay, let's get started here. Actually, no, let's not get started because first, let's mention quickly that we are presented by DauberHockey.com, proudly presented. This is also, like you said, Brian, the time of the year. It's the time of the year for Dauber Hockey, and you got to get over there because they've got their guide, a once a year tradition. I'm always so excited when it comes out. And the, the great thing is you get it now, you get the PDF, you get the projections, you, you can start reading it out. I already have. And then it's fun to check in every few days because Dauber's always throwing updates on there. You just keep downloading it over and over again as things are getting updated. And I'm sure there's going to be lots of things that are going to need to be updated once training camp starts, which might be soon. Brian, you were telling me that you heard that training camp might start as soon as next week. Is that true? 
Well, it felt like a few weeks ago there was word sort of leaking that the Senators were going to open their training camp somewhere around December 7th. And that could have meant that the other teams that didn't play in the play-in rounds uh, when the NHL unpaused were all going to get this extra week of training camp to make up for the fact that they didn't get that playing time. Uh, like they've been just sitting, not playing for a lot longer than any other team. So they were supposed to get this extra week of room. Uh, but today, as of recording, it is November 29th, and I have heard nothing like that. Uh, nothing at all about it. And we're hearing that Vegas had a thing with COVID and Columbus had a thing with COVID. And by thing, I mean outbreak. So let's, uh, I guess, I guess we're just waiting to hear it. I'll believe it when I see it. Right. Right. So we're just going to get ourselves ready as best we can for the season to start. I think the initial timeline had training camps opening over the first couple weeks of December, the first two or three weeks of December. Uh, but that was assuming the season starts on January 1st, but we don't know if that's the case. Uh, bottom line, we are not your source for NHL scheduling news around COVID. We are like, if you rate ranking the number of people who hear about it, we're probably in like the bottom 5%. So get that news elsewhere. You shouldn't be getting it from us. Why? Uh, if you do hear when the NHL is starting their season, please kindly let us know. I'll know, Brian. I, like, I'm following okay. Roto World every day. We'll definitely announce it on the podcast. But yeah, if you want to get up to the minute news, I'll, we'll retweet it. We'll try our best. Okay, okay. but yeah, uh, that is that. And uh, Yahoo Fantasy is open for what it's worth. Fantrax is obviously always yes. open. So you can start setting up your leagues. But right now, we don't exactly know what the schedule is going to be like or any of the things that I kind of feel like you need to know in order to design your league. We did that episode all about league design. And we talked about how great head-to-head is. Obviously, head-to-head... Not as great if they're going to be doing this thing where teams play like, you know, 10 days in a row and then take a couple weeks off. That's going to be really hard for matchups where like one player just isn't playing all week. So we're, yeah. we're going to have a lot to figure out once yeah. we actually we'll learn figure that. We'll cross that bridge when we get there, when we see what it looks like. Uh, in the meantime, you can go ahead and mock draft, though. That's exciting. On Yahoo, yeah. like you said, you always could on Fantrax. And we have, uh, we've had some patrons run some mock drafts already using our Discord server and also some mock slow auctions that yeah, have been running. Mm-hmm. One of our patrons, John, who went, like had the highest score in all of the cupful last season, created this spreadsheet to manage a slow auction. So it's not live, but everybody... Uh, like submits their bids. John has this very fancy spreadsheet that processes them all and assigns players based on uh, who who was the highest bid. It's uh, been the subject of a lot of talk. We've all built it. John's built it. But with all of our input, it's been a great conversation. And now we actually have some really great auction strategy talk happening. This is all on the Keeping Carlson Discord server for patrons. <laughs> so if you're interested, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Right, but yeah. Elon, we should probably uh, get started no, on let's the just make actual the whole, content. Let's just make the whole show a commercial for our Patreon program. I okay, for each... Let's do one of our Discord servers channels per minute. First, oh. channel welcome. Okay, no, no, no. Uh, I will say, by the way, we have been doing, I've been participating in a regular slow draft, not auction. I got Tuka Rask, like, super late. Like, I think it was, like, the 12th or 13th goalie off the board. And I feel like that's no- good for a normal season, but with a condensed schedule, I just want to throw it out there. Like, Tuka Rask might be one of the best, because one of the reasons why he's not a top fantasy goalie is because he basically splits games with Halak, maybe goes, like, 55-45. But if all the goalies are going to be doing that, and all of a sudden everyone's on an equal playing field as far as starters and the number of games they'll play, all of a sudden Tuka Rask 
Just don't let him fall too far down your draft boards. Anyways, okay, let's get started with the projections. So last year, we did a whole almanac. We recorded for a very long time, and for each player discussion, we ended it with a projection for point pace for this season. Like I said, we're looking back, and let's just start with the players, some players who we were too low on. So we thought these guys were not going to be anything special, and boy, did they show us. And I want to start... It, on the Rangers, I, I've got three players for you, Brian. We we really did badly. We actually did very good projecting Panarin, but uh, you know, as far as the other big names, we didn't do as well. And the first one, I think a lot of people might expect that we would have gotten this wrong because I think everyone did. Ryan Strom, what a season for Ryan Strom! Uh, I'm surprised we even projected him, considering we didn't like go through like you know 400 players, right? So, but for some reason, we brought him up. I mentioned uh, 35 point projection. You said 32, which is nothing. In the end, he had 18 goals, 41 assists, and 59 points in. 70 games for a 69-point pace. So Ryan Strom just exploded. I'm sure he wasn't drafted in most leagues, but then he was quickly added out of free agency when people saw that he was centering Artemi Panarin, and the rest was history. A fantastic season. There was all this drama like throughout the first half of the season, I recall, where people were saying, yeah, he's riding a high shooting percentage. It's probably not going to last. But then in the second half, if I recall correctly, he actually, the shooting percentage came down and he was still doing well because he actually started shooting more, which is, I think, one of the best ways to counteract uh, unsustainable shooting percentage. If you shoot more times, then that all makes it all right. So I think Ryan Strom now going to next season once again is likely going to be centering Panarin maybe instead of Jesper Fast as the other winger on that line it'll be someone like a I don't know Capococco Lafreniere I don't know we'll have to see but like potentially it's going to be another great line for Ryan Strom to be centering so I guess I'm curious to know first of all how dumb were we to get this wrong and then also do you think that what he did last year is something we can expect again yeah, we barely even included Ryan Strom in our projections. And the reason was that we didn't see him being in the Rangers top six. And this is my quote from the Almanac is that his only chance at success will be if Philip Heedle's not ready to be the second line center. And even if Heedle isn't ready, Strom wouldn't exactly be stepping into a marquee second line situation. So I said he could get 45 points in the right spot, otherwise irrelevant. And was wrong on both counts because he did end up, well, I was was wrong on pretty much every part of that, uh, especially that he's not, Strom wouldn't be stepping into a marquee second line situation. We thought that Zibanejad and Panarin were going to be playing together. Eh, Wrong. So Ryan Strom got to play with Artemi Panarin uh, on the quote unquote second line, which was pretty much even with the first line. I'd call it the first line if it had Artemi Panarin. So that's one thing that went really well for Ryan Strom. Something else we didn't see coming along with having a marquee line made in Panarin. Ryan Strom, uh, winning a spot on the top power play unit for pretty much the entire season, which helped him to 17 power play points. And keep in mind that Ryan Strom earned that spot ahead of guys that we thought might take it, like Pavel Buchnevich and Kapo Kako. So we have two questions now about whether Strom can actually keep his point totals up where they were last season. The first question is, is Ryan Strom actually good? Like, we know him as being uh, this guy who had that one moment, if you want, like you could call it a season uh, with the Islanders where he looked like a legit player was going to grow into a, you know, a top six, no doubt or NHLer and then nothing there and then nothing in Edmonton. And then, you know, he just got get, kept getting passed around from team to team and never looked good all along the way. Like I, we clearly lost hope based on where we'd projected him. Um, so trying to figure out now whether Strom is actually good is actually pretty hard because uh, it's tough to tease apart his own talent and what he contributed from all the positive impacts that he was 
privy to because he got to play with Artemi Panarin. But if you do look at his wowies, or that's the fancy way of saying with or without you charts, Strom definitely took a pretty clear plunge when he was playing without Panarin. But with Panarin, Strom was having one of the best seasons he's ever had. So why was Ryan Strom good this year? Very likely, probably, Artemi Panarin, but at least Strom presented himself as a guy who can take advantage of being in such a plum position, you know, like an Artemanisimov type, which is all to say I'm clearly still not sold on Strom as being a super talented top six NHLer if he doesn't have this deployment alongside one of the best players in the league in Artemi Panarin. Have I said Panarin enough already <laughs> this episode? This is the story of Ryan Strom. The second question about whether Ryan Strom is going to do as well next year is uh, whether this year, are we right to worry that he might lose his job? Is Philip Heedle this year actually a threat to be the second line center? And can Ryan Strom hold his top power play uh, position? It feels to me like Strom stays where he is at even strength and Heedle is the third line center unless he's taken a big step forward. But there are lots of moving pieces on the wing in that top nine. And we got the Rangers lines completely wrong in last year's Almanac. And I'm not sure we're going to do any better getting them right this time, especially because now you have Lafreniere in the picture, plus Kapokako and Buchnevich. So it's it's hard to even really know how significant uh, the impact would be if Hedl and Strom sort of were pushed around or flipped around the lineup a bit. Essentially, you just want Strom playing with Panarin. And I feel like the status quo would make sense. It worked for Strom. It worked for Panarin. So why not keep Strom with him? The part that I'm less sure about is that top power play spot that Strom has. You have to at least wonder whether Kako, Lafreniere, Buchnevich are still in the mix to take that spot away from him if one of them can step up offensively. I can't imagine that Ryan Strom is the ideal piece on that power play. Sure, he's a serviceable piece. And I I don't know if that's fair to say about a guy who has 17 power play points. Clearly, he was a contributing factor there. But could somebody do a little more than Ryan Strom could there? So for that reason, not being sure about his top power play spot, I am uh, in the buyer beware category on Ryan Strom this year. And also, uh, it doesn't get a whole lot more line dependent than what we saw from Ryan Strom's season last year. So that's another reason to avoid a player. And that's why I am uh, not that eager to draft Ryan Strom myself, even though it's perfectly possible he could do all this again by holding top power play and holding playing with Panarin. Those are just two, they're still gambles and they're gambles that I would rather not take. Yeah, like obviously it depends how far he falls in your draft. At some point, it's worth it for the upside. But I agree with you. I don't want to be nervously checking the lines. And then one day I'm following at game day lines and I see, oh, no, Strom is off the top power play. And like, you know, if anyone's going to bump him off the top power play, it's going to be someone like Lafreniere. Like the Rangers have a lot of big names in Kako and Lafreniere who I'd expect to have the spot over Strom at some point. It's just a matter of if it's going to be next season or in the future. Yeah, just to be clear, the downside is so huge, right? Like there are guys who, if they lose their plum position, maybe that's a 10 or 15 or 20 point difference. But with Strom, I feel like it could knock out half his point production. You would just be stuck with a completely valueless player. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to take a shot right now. I'm going to stake my claim on what I think the Rangers top nine might look like, okay? I would guess that they're going to stick with Zabanajad, Buchnevich, and Kreider, because that's a line that's worked for them for a while, so why change it? Which would leave, then, I think, Panarin with Strom, 
and then let's throw Capo Caco, and then that would leave a third line of Lafreniere, Hedl, and Kravtsov, who I'd expect to finally make the team. So if that happens, then let's say Strom bump goes down to the third line instead of the top line or something. He still might be playing with Lafreniere and Kravtsov, so it might not even be such a bad even strength situation, theoretically. Obviously, it depends how good yeah. Lafreniere could be as a rookie, but yeah, the power exactly. play would be a big thing. Obviously. Yeah, the power play would be a big thing, and like also thinking about the alternative places for him to land without Panarin, that's my exact worry, is that he is asked to center two rookies with no pro-North American experience. That's a big ask on someone who hasn't proven themselves to be a legit top six forward yeah. in the NHL. Uh, he's a line-dependent guy, as far as I can tell, and if you have Lafreniere... And Kravtsov on his wings, this is almost my argument that I was making in Minnesota, that Fiala's ceiling is somewhat limited because there's no center to play with him. So mm. I'd be really concerned. I mean, more so with rookies who don't have the experience that Fiala has. How are they going to acclimate to the NHL if they don't have a centerman who knows what the heck he's doing? Yeah, by the way, uh, the other projections in our universe right now are the projections that the patrons have been coming up with. We've been running this patron projection project, and every day we're putting out a form of like 10 players at a time, and the patrons submit them, and we're collating all the results and keeping track. So if you're curious, there were 31 projections submitted for Ryan Strom, and the average uh, number points, 61.6. So the patrons have him like definitely higher than we had him last year, which obviously we would as well. We're not considering him like a 35-point guy anymore, but he was on a 69 point pace last year and like i said the patrons have him dropping to maybe like 61 and there's a range obviously like the lowest was 52 and the highest was 70 so that's a sense in the end i feel like next year going to into drafts i'm just gonna go with the wisdom of the crowds here and probably end up just going with the mean of what the patrons projected assuming we get a good sample size for all of our players uh so i i agree with them and i think that takes into account some risk but also still gives him a pretty generous upside which is fair because of a potential top line with panarin again for sure. I, th- I like that the 61.6 points, it's rounded to 62. Elon sort of does bake in the risk. It's almost not quite, uh, but it's almost Ryan Nugent Hopkins-like, right? Where Ooh. depending on where he plays in the lineup, uh, his outlook is a lot different, except Ryan Nugent Hopkins can handle his own business uh, better than almost anybody in the league. So I- I'm sorry, I keep like railing against Ryan Strom. I don't mean to, but I just really want to be so clear that he's he could be fantasy relevant if he's not playing with Panarin. Yeah, I definitely don't agree with the RNH take. I don't think you do either. If it, like, I mean, well, just in terms that there are two different sets of projections, and I'll get to them because he's another player we're going to talk about. But yeah, you yeah. have your projection if he's in this one place in the lineup, and you have your projection if he's in this other place, right. and then you sort of say, okay, what percentage of the season is he going to spend in this place versus the other place, and you match them together, and that's how you get your number. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the big difference, obviously, for RNH is that I think even in the worst case, he's still like a sixty-plus point guy, yeah. and it's just like the upside is so much higher if he gets to play with dry side all again yeah, or something. Yeah, okay. he's also in a lot less danger of losing his top power play spot. Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's in zero no, danger. No danger. No yeah. danger. Kyle Turris is in bumping RNH from the top power play. Okay, so uh, let's do a couple more Rangers, right? Because like I said, this is a team that was hard to project last year. One thing that we thought would be easy 
If you recall, they had just acquired a defenseman from Winnipeg named Jacob Truba. They traded away Neil Pionk. And we thought, all right, forget about Neil Pionk this year. Uh, this is going to be now Jacob Truba's year because he's finally going to take over a top power play on a team that's like paying him big money to do so. And uh, we were wrong. Like Truba didn't hold that top power play for more than a couple of games. That job went to Anthony D'Angelo. And D'Angelo, like Strom, like ran with it basically all year and had a huge season that we weren't expecting. Like we didn't think D'Angelo was going to do nothing like i projected 40 you projected 39 and a 40 point defenseman in fantasy is worth something and i even see in my notes from last year i wrote uh even if truba has a big season doesn't mean d'angelo can't take a step forward either but i did not expect him to actually take the truba job and end up like he did with 15 goals 38 assists and 53 points in 68 games that's a 64 point pace i mean that's so much that's like so much higher than we expected him to do i i never thought that would happen i was lucky I grabbed him out of free agency in the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League early on. He was a key piece of my team getting into the playoffs. And now going into next year, I feel like it's a similar conversation with Strom, right? Because the Rangers have some defense, including Adam Fox, who's nipping at his heels. He had this amazing rookie year, and maybe he could jump on the top power play. They still have Truba. They have Keandre Miller. Like, there are some names, and so you have to want... I feel like it's, like, the same thing in my head. It's like, I'd be curious to know, even Brian, who do you think is more likely to hold their top power play spot between D'Angelo and Ryan Strom? Oh, definitely D'Angelo. I'm not at all worried about his power play production, to oh, be honest. I yeah. Am. Yeah. I, I don't know why you are. He was so good in that spot. And just because there's competition, we'll get to one of those pieces of competition in a moment. Uh, like, you have to be bad at your job to lose it. And I don't think D'Angelo was bad at his job. Uh, just going back a bit. Yeah. So much for Jacob Truba. Huh? Like, and, and that was a, a real surprise at the start. Trooper went pretty high in a lot of drafts. And we named D'Angelo someone you could take a flyer on. And my line on him in the almanac was that he was going to be boom or bust, which, you know, seems like an obvious take, but I don't think it is. Like, he could have been middling. So I'd like to say I was half right about him. I just was not expecting the boom to come as much as it did this year. Um, but why I think D'Angelo will continue quarterbacking that top power play is because he pays for 20 three power play points from that quarterback position. And honestly, he can keep those for next year. I don't see any reason to expect him to lose uh, any significant amount of them. Where I do wonder about Tony D'Angelo matching his 2019-20 point totals next season is at five on five. And the reason for that is because Tony D'Angelo ranked fourth in shooting percentage amongst defensemen with more than 60 shots on goal last season. And that's the number I'm watching. Uh, he had 12 goals at even strength thanks to that shooting percentage. Also ranked fourth in the league for defensemen for goal scores, goal scored at even strength. But his, his expected goals were only half that number. So this is a guy who might have scored uh, 12 even strength goals when maybe five or six would have made more sense based on uh, expected goals matrix, like, you know, how dangerous his shots were, how often he shot uh, his shooting percentage. The thing with him is we don't know yet whether the shooting percentage he put up was sustainable because he hasn't been around the league all that long to get that number. But my hunch is that it's pretty high. Another place where D'Angelo is benefiting from some variants that might not be sustainable. In fact, in most cases, it's not sustainable, um, was in his IPP at five on five. It ranked third in the league amongst defensemen who played more than 750 minutes. And like saying that a guy is a league leader in shooting percentage and IPP, neither of those are good things alone. Together, it really is a, hmm, maybe this is not sustainable. Those are the two 
biggest red flags that a player is punching above their weight with their production and they're benefiting from some randomness and bounces. But again, without a big enough sample for D'Angelo, it's can't be, I can't be sure whether this is variance that is fleeting um, as it would be for nearly any other defenseman in the league or whether D'Angelo has some unique traits and skills that do make him able to sustain that IPP and shooting percentage. The fantasy hockey robot in me leans towards no, he does not have some unique traits and skills that make him able to sustain this. But um, regardless of that, he's still going to get probably more than 20 power play points. So very reasonable he can nab at least another 30, 35 points at evens to still be one of the uh, most valuable defensemen in the league next year in terms of point production. So I am still very much behind Tony D'Angelo continue to be continuing to be a solid producer next year, but I don't see him getting quite to the same heights because I just don't think that IPP and shooting percentage is going to hold up. All right. I mean, that's very fair. And everything you're saying sounds right at even strength. I'm just kind of surprised how quick you are to dismiss Adam Fox. Like, obviously, you could be right in the end. I don't think it's a a done deal either way. It's just like, to me, everything I've heard is that Adam Fox is this like huge up and coming. He had this amazing rookie season. He did so well with the minutes he was given. And when he was on the power play, he was very successful. And normally, like a rookie tends to work their way up the lineup as they go to their sophomore and third and fourth seasons. And like in all the slow drafts I've done, it's been Adam Fox drafted ahead of D'Angelo, and obviously that's also because of some of the peripherals that he gives. Uh, Stefan asked in the chat here, Tony D or Adam Fox, and uh, Jeremy is saying Fox is better than D'Angelo, but obviously, oh, because he doesn't act like a fool on Twitter, so I guess that could be one metric where you can compare them. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Adam Fox, and then you can give, uh, I mean, hey, that's your opinion, and like you said, it, it, it's a fair argument that D'Angelo was great on the power play, so why change it? Though you could also say that Morgan Riley was great on the power play a couple years ago, and then he didn't hold that spot on the leaf. So I just saw an article, actually, recently, it was like, like linked to on Roto World, how Riley apparently like suggested to the coaching staff and to Kyle Dubas that they should put Tyson Barry on the top power play because Barry was struggling to start the year. Did you read this, Brian? I did not read it's that. It's a nice That's, story. It, it was like a good guy, Morgan Riley. Yeah, it was apparently like Barry was in a contract year and Riley wanted to do him a favor. Like, hey, why don't you give Barry a shot on the top power play? And then I guess Riley couldn't get it back. So maybe that was extenuating that circumstances. That weird, though. Like, if, like, why would the coach even be, oh, okay, that, that's really nice of you, Morgan. I'm just going to put Tyson there instead. Well, maybe it was more you, just like... You thought so. Maybe it was more just like, uh, if you want to, it won't hurt my feelings kind of thing. Because maybe the Leafs knew that Barry's just a one-year situation and Riley's there for the long term. So know, they maybe, didn't want to Maybe Riley Riley's saw feelings. the writing on the wall and wanted <laughs> to feel a little bit more like it was, it was his decision. I'm okay with it, man. You go oh, ahead. Yeah. That's fair. Okay. He was just like, before getting fired, he like went and found himself a new job first. But okay. Uh, so Adam Fox. Anyways, I don't know what's going to happen, obviously, but I think that Adam Fox is someone to consider, right? He, so we, by the way, considered him barely last year. We did project him each for 30 points, and he blew that out of the water. As a rookie, eight goals, 34 assists, 42 points in 70 games for a 49-point pace, not even on the top power play, and he had a 49-point pace. So super impressive. Obviously, he came to the Rangers from Carolina in that Dougie Hamilton trade, and it's looking like uh, the Rangers really did well. Uh, so... All, all that to say, or sorry, no, he went from Calgary to Carolina. The Rangers did even better. He, they didn't give anything to him. It was a whole ELC situation. Anyways, Adam Fox is a Ranger, and I think that he's due to repeat what he did and maybe could be better if he can take the top power play. It's nice to know that even if he doesn't take the top power play, we saw what he can do without it. Uh, but yeah, so what's your take on Adam Fox? And I guess you can revisit if you want why you're confident that he is not going to be bumping D'Angelo. 
So you said I was dismissing Adam Fox too easily. I'm not dismissing him at all. We're coming at this from two different perspectives. You're saying Adam Fox has everything it takes to win the job. And I agree. But first, Tony D'Angelo needs to lose it. And I just, I, I don't see where that would come from. Adam Fox, just to be clear, I'm a huge fan. He was the top 25 defenseman in the league in five-on-five point scoring, which is very nice and looks repeatable and sustainable for him. Uh, where I see an issue for him to reach last season's point totals is being able to repeat all of his power play success, which saw him pace for 15 power play points while only playing about 35% of his team's power play minutes. Now, this isn't about his skill. This is just about opportunity. Usually, if you see, uh, especially a share of your team's power play minutes, lower than 40%, you're looking at 10, maybe 11 power play points. So that's where I'm not sure that Adam Fox can get all the way up to 15 power play points with the same power play deployment. And again, not to say, that Fox didn't show some real power play talent. In fact, from what I see, he is absolutely a legit NHL power play one quarterback. Maybe on half the teams in the league, he could walk right into that position uh, like and beat out whoever their current personnel is. Not to say that D'Angelo is the best at it, but D'Angelo has the job. He did well in it. And I just don't think the opportunity is there right now. I, I suppose we can gear up for a training camp battle. And if D'Angelo falters and Fox can step in, I just saw so much success from D'Angelo that I'm not sure why the Rangers would open up that opportunity again, would would, would post that job uh, and give Fox a chance to take it. I know he could if he had the opportunity, but again, for him to win the job, someone has to lose it. Yeah. And I guess the thing is, it's a long season, or maybe this one won't be as long of a season. But I agree that maybe D'Angelo has the job out of the gate. But if, if something goes wrong, if, if, if they're struggling, I don't think it would take much. Like, I don't think that he has like, a super long leash just because of the other options available. So it makes yeah. him a little bit riskier, I think. Yeah, I hear that. Um, I hear that. Okay. All right. So <laughs> that... <laughs> I, that's fine. <laughs> oh no! Sorry. Like, I, I, well, I'm biting my tongue because obviously the thing that you sort of referenced it is like, well, you know, Tony D'Angelo or someone in the chat did. He's tweeting, you know, this and that, and being uh, like saying all kinds of things that, uh, in my mind, are unkind and unfair. Uh, but uh, you know, it's it's controversy, and he's inviting this. And when you become uh, like a lightning rod or a magnet for that kind of negative attention, you wonder whether you're, whether a team is going to give that person a continued chance to still be a key a key cog, uh, mm-hmm. and how much all that extra attention is going to give him. So if you're if you want me to look for a reason why Fox can take the job, honestly, that might be the best argument I can make is that the Rangers, uh, you know, he got essentially booted off his first team in Arizona. And if the Rangers decide, hey, we, there's no indication they feel this way about him yet, yet. But if the <laughs> Rangers decide, hey, like, we probably don't want to be married to this guy for a whole lot longer, then sure, that's why Fox gets the job. Yes, that's possible. Uh, okay, so that ends the Rangers talk for this episode. I guess, yeah, was, we, we've done a solid... Was that diplomatic enough? That was great. You did a great job. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we've done about uh, half an hour on the Rangers. Uh, in the chat here, Jeremy's saying the Rangers are looking really good for a team that started to rebuild two years ago. And I, yeah, it definitely helped that uh, they're the Rangers and Arte- Artemi Panarin wanted to go there. And they got uh, Lafreniere and they got Kako in the draft. They got Shostyorkin out of the KHL with a late pick that really has turned out to look really really good so yeah the rangers have had some luck and also they've done a great job with this rebuild so uh one player that they did have on the team but they let go and then that had a huge season last year 
is JT Miller. And of course, there was a stop on the Tampa Bay Lightning in between. But let's talk about Miller, because that's another guy that we were decently into going into his stint with the Canucks. He had gotten traded to the Canucks last offseason, and we looked at what he had done in the previous few seasons, and he paced for 51 points on the Lightning in 2018-19, 47 points in 75 games, and we said, he'll probably do about the same. Uh, I projected him for 52. You projected him for 52. Clearly, we weren't expecting him to jump right to the top line and top power play with Elias Pettersson, because otherwise I think we would have gone higher, but that's exactly what happened, and he ended the year with the best numbers so far of all the players we're going to talk about uh, 27 goals 45 assists 72 points in 69 games that's an 86 point pace over a point per game Miller was amazing and as far as fantasy went he was like top top tier because he shot like he hit if you were in a multi-category league that counts hits like Miller was killing it for you so so, like, obviously now going into next season, I feel like we can be confident that he's going to stick with Pedersen. So I don't think we're going to be going back to projecting him for 52 points again. But I'm curious to know if you think, even with this plum deployment, were those 86 points that he paced for, was that still too rich? Is that so- Or is that something you think that we can reliably expect him to do yet again, even though before last season, he had never been more than like a mid 50 point guy? So going into last season, yeah, that's where we saw him because what we saw as a ranger, he could drive play and he had a really great skill set. And then he got to Tampa and had good deployment and we thought he'd be in the money, but uh, then he got to play a lot with Nikita Kucherov and did not do much with the opportunity. In fact, he was really quiet and sort of got this reputation for being streaky. Uh, and I named in the almanac that half his point, half of JT Miller's point production in 1819 came in just two stretches that combined to make up just a third of his games played. And then so looking to what he would do in his first season in Vancouver, first we thought he was just going to be consistently on Bo Horvat's wing. We didn't see room for him on the top line. We didn't even know that there'd be room for him on the top power play just because he hadn't proven himself like he had a year playing with Nikita Kucherov and didn't do a whole lot with it. Uh, So does this guy really deserve top line, top power play deployment? Well, Vancouver said yes. Uh, And JT Miller did not end up with Bo Horvat, was a fixture on the top power play. So the swing and the miss for us on JT Miller in the Almanac was on his deployment. I'm not so sure it was on his skill. Uh, in fact, I like if I can say, you can tell me, take this away from me because he's one of the guys we got the most wrong. But I was actually not so far off on his goal totals. I said he'd have 25 goals with top power play time and he ended up pacing for 30. Uh, like it's, it's close-ish, right? Uh, but then... Uh, oh, be- take it. You can take that. Thanks. But beyond those goals, uh, he was just piling up assists with Elias Pettersson and on the top power play. Almost a third of Mil- JT Miller's assists from 2019-20 came on Elias Pettersson goals. And one other factor that we didn't see uh, being a reason to expect a whole lot from JT Miller or enabling the full power of JT Miller coming out was Quinn Hughes, who deserves to be mentioned here because JT Miller and Quinn Hughes worked together a lot on 10 of Miller's 45 assists this season, he and Hughes shared the assisting score, like the assists were in the same bracket on the assists in the score sheet. They Can't you just say they together. both assisted? They both assisted on the same goal. Okay, great. I can say that. Um, which like 10 out of 45 doesn't sound like a lot, but it uh, seems to be uh, that it like that, that speaks to how much they work together. So Hughes being amazing, uh, with Miller, power play one time for Miller and Pedersen all happened for him. So when I'm looking at whether, like, we didn't see that coming 
But is it going to happen again? Yeah. I think all that's going to stay. I think Quinn Hughes is still great. I think Pedersen's still going to be his line mate. I think he's a fixture on the top power play. And I still think JT Miller is a legit good player. So I am saying that JT Miller can do it again. 86 point pace. And I'm really excited to find out if I'm right. I feel, you tell me, is it a bit of a swing to say that he can just repeat? It doesn't feel like it should be, but just saying it out loud feels a little bit like it is. Well, uh, I mean, okay, let's take a look at what the patrons thought. Uh, out of 32 projections, the average was 77.6. So they definitely had him really great, again, approaching point per game, but they didn't have him over a point per game. The highest projection, someone put him for 92, and then the lowest was down at 62. But yeah, I think probably if I was like putting my projection in, I would probably agree with the patrons, like maybe around 80 points, but we're nitpicking, right? It's like a couple good games could really move the needle one way or the other, or like a couple bad games when we're talking about just like a couple points, especially with the pace next year, if we're only going to be playing like 42 games, that all of a sudden like one or two big games really can push you to uh, like a higher 82 game pace. So uh, yeah, I think that everything you said makes sense. Like he's in the same situation. He seems like he's good. Like he didn't seem to do anything unsustainable as far as your research. So why shouldn't he be able to be again, a really top guy? And in fantasy, shoot him up those draft lists, right? And I guess my concern would be that I recall Vincent Trocek doing this a couple seasons ago, right? He kind of came out of nowhere, but he, he wasn't on a new team, but he was in a new situation on Florida. All of a sudden, he was on the top power play and he just like exploded and had like, like a 70 plus point season. He was like top five or top 10 in a lot of fantasy leagues in terms of the league ranking because of all of his hits and shots. And so I'm seeing like JT Miller did the same thing. So I am a little bit afraid that now people will like be grabbing Miller in the first round because they see how valuable he was to their fantasy teams. And then, you know, with Trocek, he fell like super far. And now like going into next season, I don't even know if he'll be drafted in a lot of leagues. And so, but I get, but with Miller, like I don't see him getting bumped, right? Like like Trocek got bumped off the top power play and things kind of changed for him. But like you said, obviously anything could happen, but I'm with you that I feel like Miller should just be in the same situation and have the same success. And if anything, like Quinn Hughes... Like, he's, he's like a teenager, right? He's young. Like, he, he could maybe even be better in the future. So things could get even better for the Canucks, potentially, at least offensively. Yeah, and remember that Vincent Trocek lost power play deployment. That's one of the things that hurt him in his follow-up season after having uh, that 75-point campaign. And then the season after that, uh, his which was last season, his most common line mates were Connolly and Noel Achari. So considering that and the likelihood of that happening to JT Miller, I like I don't see the comparison there. I don't think JT Miller is about to get buried in the yeah. lineup or lose his power play time. So I am uh, I'm all in. Like I don't see any reason to take any points away from him. In fact, if you think Elias Pettersson is going to do better next year, then uh, you might want to give JT Miller even another extra points, another couple extra points on his projection. So Elon, the patrons are at 77. I'm just going to put my stake in the ground exactly where he was last season at 86 points. Yours, you're closer to 77, huh? I guess so. But like I said, it's it could be like a coin flip in terms of like it could change and be one or the other without with just one or two big games. So uh, yeah, I think we're around the same ballpark. And yeah, like the thing with Miller also is I would have been maybe a little bit more nervous about him potentially being bumped from the top power play. Like if they brought Tyler Toffoli back, then all of a sudden like it was Besser who was bumped off the top power play in the playoffs, if you recall. And so like theoretically Besser could have like taken that job away from JT Miller. Like who knows, right? But now we don't have to worry about it because there really is no competition. It's going to be Miller- Horvat, uh, Pedersen, and who am I missing? Miller, Horvat, Pedersen, and Hughes. Besser. 
and Patterson, yeah, Besser and Hughes as the top power play. And like, I think there's a big leap to everyone else. So Miller's not getting bumped. Uh, okay. And we'll talk about Patterson actually in a bit, or I can even bring him up now. He's actually someone that we nailed really well last year. So why not take a win where we can? We got Miller wrong, but I projected 85. You projected 82 for Elias Patterson, and he pays for 80. So we were like a little, a smidge higher. I was even a little bit too high compared to you. But overall, we expect that he was going to be around a point per game. And he was. And yeah, the question now becomes, is he going to do even better? Like, I guess you already brought it up, how we've been chatting in Discord. We actually had a question about Pedersen versus Alex Barkov for next year. And yeah, I was like firmly in the, I feel like Elias Pedersen could be a 100-point guy as soon as next year. Like, I'm all in. Like, we're just watching the highlights of him over the summer. have been so fun. Like, just like, whenever I'm like, you know, missing hockey and wanting to look at some highlights, I look at like McDavid and then I, I look at Pedersen because they're just so fun. He's such a great player and he's still super young. Uh, so yeah, I feel like... I'm in for Pedersen to be higher. If I was projecting him for next year, I wouldn't be saying 85 again. I'd be saying maybe 90, 95 with a potential of 100. Is that too crazy? No, I think he's right on the doorstep of breaking through to that next level. There's no reason not to like what he's done. And he's just heading into his age 22 season. I actually was playing uh, NHL 21 on our Keeping Carlson EASHL club uh, with one of our patrons, Brayden. And he was mentioning during like what we were playing in threes. And uh, I don't even remember how it came up, but he mentioned that goalies had an 807 save percentage against Elias Pettersson at five on five, which is just crazy. He made this point that like, it gives you a, a whole different perspective saying that uh, versus uh, saying that Pettersson's shooting percentage was 19.35%. I guess it just goes to say that whether he's shooting or he's passing to someone to give them an awesome shot, like that awesome highlight where like, he falls over and then he like somehow passes it while he's on the ground to the guy uh, on the doorstep to go and pop it in. Uh, yeah, he's making the goalies look bad. And that's his job. Same as McDavid. Yeah. It. <laughs> it's just, it, it's crazy. Like, it's one thing, but you hear what I'm saying, right? It's one thing to say a guy has a 20% shooting percentage. It's another thing to say that goalies are 800 against him when he <laughs> takes a shot at them. Like, that is insane, out-of-this-world, alien-level skill. And I don't think it's a fluke. Uh, we'll see if Pedersen can keep up such a high shooting percentage at 5-on-5. Five five. But to be honest, uh, his all-situation shooting percentage was actually higher as a rookie, and he took about 20 more shots on net this year, or he paced to take about 20 more shots on net this year than he did last. So for that reason, man, am I psyched about Elias Pettersson, and I would hope that if we both called him a 95 to 100 point player next year, we would be just as on the nose as we were this past season in getting him right. Where did the patrons have him? Uh, they have him around 88, so... Not at 100 yet, but definitely a couple do. So it's just a matter of how high you are. The highest is 105, the lowest is 78. So uh, if, he, if he bases for 78, that would be kind of a disappointing third season. By the way, Brad, can I take a credit for a small thing? Uh, I was noticing in the Almanac last year, I brought up that I thought that Pedersen will shoot more. Right? Yeah. I don't <laughs> That's pretty know, good, right? Like, we argued about this on the Almanac, actually, because I was like, we were just like, okay, he's going in the second year. He's going to take more shots. And I was like, even Why? Why would he necessarily take more shots? Like, shot taking is not something that grows in a linear way. Like, you might just be a certain kind of player. Well, you were wrong. I'm, well, if I if I had set an allowable threshold to define how many more shots he'd need to take to be a step up, like, I, I'm looking at his shooting rates. Yes, at even strength, he had um, under four-tenths of a shot more per 60 minutes. So that's, like, essentially the same rate. 
but he probably played more minutes, right? Uh, at even strength, no, he didn't well, play more minutes. So uh, I'm, <laughs> he did shoot. He did take more of a shooting role on the power play, though. So I don't. I don't think that's what you were getting at with the point you were making. Um, but he had about four and a half more shots per sixty minutes while <laughs> on the power play, and that's that's where he made up this difference to 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 do something that you think proves you right, but I'm still not so sure. Okay, let me look at any player, like name a player. I'll bet you that any like star player in the league, I'm going to predict that if I look at their stats, they had not their most shots or they set the level of their shots in their rookie season. Like, let me look at Eric Carlson. How about that so, as a fun one? Like, uh, no, I disagree with your methodology because I, I don't think that I'm just, you should. Yeah. Like we're not just saying it increases. You're saying like he becomes more of a shooter and he didn't become more of a shooter at five. You're just okay. like, well, I'll have to go back and re-listen to the conversation. I was just looking at the notes. I'm pretty sure that I was just saying that, like, I think he'll probably end up taking more shots. Like, I was like, in fa- in terms of fantasy, if you're like avoiding him because he's not a big shot taker, I was just like kind of saying that usually players shoot more in their you know second season than they do in their rookie season. Uh, I don't know. I'm looking at Eric Carlson just for fun now, and yeah, he had 182 shots in 2010-11. Then he went up to 261. That's totally then by 2014 15, he was at 292. That's insanely different as a defenseman, sure. too. So, All right, give uh, me a player. Throw a player. Uh, at me. Okay, let's look up uh, Jonathan Taves. Okay, that's a great. That's a great one. Though Jonathan Taves is already so long ago that I wonder if there was a change in like the NH. Okay, maybe yeah, let's you're right. Let's not count him. Okay, so first season he played 64 games. He had 144. I'm shots. doing the pace. 270. He paced for 278 shots in his rookie season. In his second season, uh, 195. He actually went down. 144 divided by 64 times 82. Your math is wrong, Brian. You don't know how to math. Okay, he pays for 184 in his first season. Oh, you're then right. <laughs> and then, then he had 195 in his next season, so 11 he, more. Yeah, and then 202, and then 233. So like I said... And then 185... Well, yeah, I'm just saying that people don't establish their number of shots in their rookie season. No, <laughs> I, I agree with that. That's the I don't point. think it, I don't. Okay. That's my whole point. I don't think, I don't think it, no, your whole it's point fine. is fine. If you that say you agree with it, we're done. You go up. I agree that you don't establish your baseline. I, but I contend that there was no reason to expect more shots from Pedersen in his second year than his first. And at five on five, I was absolutely 100% correct. But here, how about this? I'm going to end on this really amazing fact going back to Pedersen's shooting percentages that might be sustainable. Um, 20 extra shots for Elias Pedersen is four more goals. So even if it is like this small incremental gain in shots on goal, because he scores on 20% of the shots he takes at even strength, that's actually a pretty big deal. So there you go. Let me throw something out at you. I think he's going to take more shots next year. So how about <laughs> <Yay>! that? <laughs> that's so rude. Well, I mean, I think he's just gaining more confidence and he's realizing how elite he is. All right, so let's go on. So uh, another person we were wrong about was <laughs> a guy on the Vegas Golden Knights. And he had been a very good player for a long time. And then he was on the Canadians. And then all of a sudden he started having a couple down years. He got traded to Vegas, then had a huge down year. And so then going into last year, we actually were like, you know what? Max Pacioretty isn't even as bad as his numbers last year were. We were like, we, were like, we thought we were being good and like, you know, approaching the correct number by saying we think he's going to have a bounce back. And we put him down for like 55, 56 points, which was a big improvement over what he did in 2018-19. But 
even with that, even with that increase, we were still way, way off because he blew us out of the water. He ended up having a monster season, another like JT Miller, right? In terms of the great shots on goal and decent hits. And he ended up with 32 goals, 34 assists for 66 points in 71 games. So a 76 point pace, which I believe was a career year for Pacioretty as he uh, gets into his 30s. So good for him. And now, I guess the same question as all these people that we got wrong is like, uh, obviously, like what went right for him was he was playing with Mark Stone, which is amazing. Uh, they, by the end of the year, they were also being centered by uh, William Carlson. And going to next year, I would expect Carlson to once again center Stone and Pacioretty. Or maybe, you know, Vegas could always go back to having Carlson with Marshall Stone Smith. But then now they've got Cody Glass ready to come up and be a, a second line center. So you'd still expect there to be a good center. And obviously, we are big fans of Mark Stone on this podcast. So I would think that Pacioretty should be able to do this again. On the other hand, You'll have to remind me, like, how did he do so badly the year before in his first year with Vegas? And, and so, yeah, remind me why he was bad, why we projected him to get better, and then if you think that he actually is as good as he was last year, which was almost a point per game. Okay, so let's first go back to why he got bad. And, it like, it looked really freaking dire for Max Pacioretty. He had 50 points uh, in 2018-19. That was his pace. And he also dropped to a 230 shot pace over 82 games which you know might be okay for some players but patch ready that was a drop from a 270 shot on goal pace the two years before that which were dropped from 300 shot paces the years before that and that's why I said on the almanac, I don't think Pacioretty's best hockey is ahead of him in Vegas. I was still open to him bouncing back above 50 points. Absolutely. But I even said I was skeptical that he could become a 30-goal, 60-point guy because he wasn't playing the same role in Vegas as he did in Montreal. He saw his time on ice all over the place in Vegas in his first season, first full season there between 15 and 19 minutes, um, which to me told me that he never really played well enough to justify the biggest role Vegas was willing to offer him. So here was Pacioretty, bleeding shots, not being able to earn his minutes. And I was just like, okay, Pacioretty, uh, we're just going to re- uh, re-pencil him in, like, no longer a high-end shooter, no longer a high-end score, but still decent, about 60 points. And then, of course, he proved me completely wrong by... Like, this is actually, for me, the most interesting player of the episode, because Max Pacioretty essentially reinvented himself. First, just going back to deployment for a second, he added another minute per game at five on five to his ice time. So he actually played a career high 14 and a half minutes a night at five on five um, for his biggest five on five role ever. So my concerns from 1819 that Vegas was trying to trust him at five on five, but couldn't uh, were gone because they did play him that much. And he did really well with those minutes. But here is where Patch Reddy really reinvented himself. And that's as a shots on goal uh, crazed lunatic. Uh, he had a career high in shots on goal per 60 minutes and in age 31 setting a career high, especially with having a whole career where you've made yourself known as a shooter is not a common thing. Like for five years, Max Pacioretty was more or less a 300 shot guy. This season at age 31, he paced for 355 shots on goal, which is straight up insane. For context on how insane that is, that would rank as the ninth highest shots on goal per game total of all time for players who played more than 40 games in a season. And Pacioretty's 355 shots on goal rank as the third highest full season shot total in the last 20 years 
And there's only one guy ahead of him. That's two seasons of Alex Ovechkin, who had 425 shots one year and then 368 another. Those are the only markers higher than Pacioretty's shots in the last 20 years. If you want to go find a higher one, you've got to go back all the way to 98-99 when Paul Correa had 429 oh. shots on goal. But that's like 25 years ago. So Max Pacioretty with a shot-taking season for the ages. He also, by the way, got off the schneid on the power play. He had an awful time with the man advantage in 1819 in his first year as a Golden Knight. This year, he fixed that. Somehow, Pacioretty reinvigorated his game at age 31 to become the player we, had him, we hadn't seen him be since like age 27. And then uh, he went even above and beyond those versions of himself. And the bottom line here that, that just jumps out to me is that Pacioretty's success was not random. It was not driven by variance. So I'm still just trying to fully understand exactly how he did this. How does a 31-year-old raise his game to this level? Better training, better coaching, better environment, better mood. Like, it's tough for me to say whether Pacioretty should be able to do it again without knowing exactly how he did it last year in a totally sustainable fashion. So seeing that it was all sustainable tells me that, yeah, Pacioretty should just be able to do it again since he did it at 31. Why can't he do it at 32? The human in me still uh, is desperate to know more. And like I, after we record this episode, I'm going to continue trying to find some reading with any kind of concrete information about how Pacioretty himself changed to be who he was this season. Um, but I'm leaning very much towards Pacioretty repeating this season, much more so than I'm leaning away from it. So Max, Max Pacioretty reinventing himself. And I don't think it's just a one season reinvention. I think yeah. he's got at least another year or two of this in him, especially as you mentioned on like in this beautiful situation in Vegas. Yeah, for sure. Like he had a great year. He's in the same great situation. I guess we're like kind of tell me if I'm wrong. I think we're missing something in fantasy analysis in terms of like when we decide if like a player and if their numbers were sustainable, because I feel like a big part of the research that we do is always like you look at the number of shots and the percent of that percentage of them that turned into goals or like while they were on the ice, what percentage of shots turned into goals. Then you can sort of be like, oh, that was like kind of a high shooting percentage or a low shooting percentage. But Brian, uh, my question to you was like, do we have anything in place for like if the number of shots was sustainable because i feel like you know we usually i feel like when usually when you do your analysis you like look at like someone who took a lot of shots last year and you're like okay he just if if he maintains those number of shots then you know you i never hear you say that the number of shots was unsustainable and that's the thing that would cause him probably to go down right if he doesn't shoot as much and like you said he all of a sudden jumped and shot like more than he had been for a really long time so how do we know that that wasn't somehow a fluke like i'd be curious to know if there's any measurement out there to measure the sustainability of the shots on goal metric Okay, so for example, when we're looking at goals to see if that's sustainable, we look at shots, yeah. right? So you're saying when we look at shots, what's what's the underlying piece to that? Exactly. Um, like how do we know if he's going to be able to take it? Were, okay. the, were his shot on goal so numbers from last year sustainable? Here's how we look at it. Like a shot is a lottery ticket for a goal, right? So you could take a bunch of shots, you buy a bunch of tickets, and you should be rewarded X percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So... I guess if we want to extend that, what is a lottery ticket for a shot? Like receiving the puck, being passed to, getting open? 
Yeah. So it's tricky. Yeah. Like, I don't think we have something yet to like be like, okay, last year, Pacioretty took 307 shots in 71 games. The year before, he had 191 shots in 66 games. Like you're saying, you want to read and find out like what he did to reinvent his game, how that changed. I'm interested to know, like, I agree. Like, I agree with you that he should be able to do it again if he takes 307 shots once again. Uh, the question is like, you know, he might, he won't do that forever, right? At some point, that'll go down. And I guess. But, like, everything you're saying makes sense because it's, like, what he did was sustainable based on the number of shots he took. So, I guess, yeah. I, you get what I'm saying and I don't have a response or anything. Yeah. So John's here in the chat. Uh, he's our spreadsheet expert. He's already said that he's going to look into our argument well, about if rookies... Well, he's reignited. The argument about Pedersen is still raging in the chat about the shots and whether it's reasonable. Like, going Whatever. back. Whatever. We have to move on have, from that. Yeah. Come to the live show, keepingcarlson.com slash live, Sunday nights. You can see our tweets to to know you know exactly when we're recording can i say um, a really lame thing by the way can sure. everyone can everyone who's watching live still like subscribe to the podcast and download the podcast because <laughs> I, I, I was saying, like i'm trying to put more effort into making the live show better for people who aren't watching live i've been putting a picture a hockey card of each player as we talk about them so as you go through the episode you can see who we're talking about uh but at the same time i don't want like all these people to come and watch the show and then I'll, is that a dumb well, way to think about it i don't know well, never... you told you gave away the secret of the amazing live show and now people are going to unsubscribe on the podcast feed and be like i'm gonna watch on youtube that's the better experience I think if you really wanted to do us like a cheap favor, like obviously the big favor is to become a patron. If you want to do us a cheap favor, like subscribe to us on like everything, right? Like subscribe on iTunes and Spotify and like all the different things and like have your phone like automatically download the episode like multiple times. Isn't that great uh, for us? We'll get all, I'll boost up our numbers. Yeah, I feel like what you're describing might like make it really dubious when we do try and present our listener numbers. So let's say we're not encouraging okay, anyone wink. to actually do that. But we appreciate wink. your... Su- <laughs> I'm not winking, Elon. <laughs> okay. Uh, we should probably move on from that part of the conversation. Okay, Subscribe yeah. to us on your favorite podcasting service. All right. So, uh, John, uh, a challenge to you or any listener, find a way to measure if the number of shots a player took one year is sustainable and if we like a way for us to try to predict if patcheretti will once again take 300 plus shots next year i'd be interested in that but for now work has definitely been done somewhere about what like how repeatable shots are year to year and it's been found that they're repeatable well i mean sometimes a player comes out of nowhere and has a big season with a more a lot of shots so this is what i'm saying what changed with patcheretti like i i don't know that it's even an even an on ice thing right it might have been or it could be an on ice thing it could be a different strategy it might be the coaching staff told yeah like change change tactics change role change system there's so many things and i'm not sure it's something that he like was actually doing better on the ice maybe the on ice situation was more suited and built around him like i said maybe it was training maybe it was something off like maybe he was just a happier guy i don't know uh, maybe uh, we need to get Pete DeBoer on the podcast and ask him why he thinks he took more shots. That would be very helpful. You please book him. I'll ask the questions. And also, because we already had a question from last week, we wanted to ask him who's going to be on the top power play between Petrangelo and Theodore. So we okay. have a few questions for this guy. Somebody please hook us up with Pete DeBoer as a podcast guest. Yeah, and if it's the assistant coach, we'll maybe be able to make that work also. like just Daniel, we're looking at you. 
Oh, yeah, that's true. I wonder if he still listens. Okay, uh, so let's go to our next player that we totally blew it on. This one's not that bad, but I think it's interesting also because we kind of like argued about him a bit during the season of whether we thought he'd be able to sustain it. So I'm talking about Zach Hyman over on the Leafs, like our favorite guy who just like is in this like awesome situation. We definitely know it's like line dependent. Like it's not like Zach Hyman is getting all of these points on his own. It's because he's always playing with either Tavares or Matthews. And last year, he definitely benefited from that spot. Like, going into the year, we knew he was going to be playing with one of those elite centers. And we still projected him for, like, 43 and 44 points. In the end, he crushed that, right? 51 points in tw- in uh, 37 games for a 59-point pace. or 60-point pace, basically, for Zach Hyman. I'm really curious to know now if this is something that we're going to have to still argue about or if we're going to agree. Like, I just want to know, like, what do you think for next year? Like, at this point, he's, I think, going to be a lock for the top six again. If anything, they've, like, you know, they've gotten rid of Kapanen and Janssen. So there's even, like, less competition. Now we're, like, we've been discussing who we think is going to take the sixth spot like after he's already gotten one of the spots and you know we're wondering if like Mikhaev or like Robertson or someone is going to take that sixth spot but in the meantime we think Hyman's a lock so he's going to keep getting that great deployment plus in fantasy he's the one that if he could get you a 60 point pace super valuable like maybe not at the level of like a JT Miller because he doesn't shoot a lot but he does hit a lot so if you're in a multi-category league that counts hits he's great especially if he could do 60 points so I guess the question yeah Brian do you think that Zach Hyman and his 60 point pace last year is sustainable I don't think we even need to debate if he's going to hold the deployment I think we could both agree tell me if I'm wrong I think we could both agree he's holding that deployment so we can just say like in the same situation will he be able to put up the same number of points okay to answer that question again I'm going to go back to what we said on the almanac which was we pointed out that Hyman had already played every single game of 2018-19 with John Tavares except one. And in that game, he played with Matthews and Nylander, and he played with Marner every single game of 18-19 except one also. So Hyman had already been in this amazing situation, and yet he still only managed a 47-point pace, which is why I stayed low on him. I'm like, look, even best-case deployment scenario... He had 47 points, so why should I expect a whole lot more this time around? And we uh, surmised that there was more competition for his spot in the top six, so we took a couple points off him uh, from that 47-point pace, unsure that he could hold on to it. Well, two things happened this year for Hyman with that exact same deployment to get up to a 59-point pace. The first piece could be sustainable, which is that while he remained entrenched in the top six being centered by Matthews or Tavares virtually all year. Hyman also got more time on ice, 15 and a half minutes a night, nearly one and a half minute more than either of the previous seasons where he did have that 47 point pace, even while playing in the top six. And I think that was a product of new coaching, right? Sheldon Keefe came in and, uh, and heard, I heard or already had adopted like the same criticisms of Babcock. That was like, why is Mike Babcock putting his bottom six lines out there as often as he does. You need to lean on the Matthews and Tavares lines. And that's what Sheldon Keefe did. And that benefited Zach Hyman because he's on the Matthews and Tavares's line. So that's the part, that's the piece that I think is sustainable for Zach Hyman to still beat those old 47 point paces going forward. But the reason why I don't think he can repeat this 59 point pace going forward is that he had a 20% shooting percentage, 15% shooting percentage at five on five, both of which jump over and above any shooting percentage that Hyman has put up before. Hyman was on pace for 34 goals last season. And while I like Zach Hyman, I have nothing against him. I don't think he's a 34 goal scorer, even with that extra ice time he's getting. 
Hmm. And to me, that's the story of Hyman jumping all the way from 47 to 59. Realistically, I think Hyman could crack 50 if those extra minutes keep coming in the top six, and I think they will. But to get above 55 points again, he's going to need another season of unsustainable shooting, which in all likely, like by definition, uh, is unsustainable. So I will give Hyman uh, 50 points, no doubt, uh, so long as he stays in the top six, and I think he will. Uh, and then I'll say he can creep up between 50, like towards 55, but getting over that 55 point hump is not going to happen unless he has the same shooting, I'll call it luck, that he did last season. Well, yeah, I guess the question is, was it shooting luck or was it that uh, Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews were giving him those sweet, sweet feeds? And that's the reason, like, maybe he wasn't, it wasn't luck. Like, Marner had 51 assists last year in 59 games. So he, that was like one of his best ever assists seasons. And so I feel like if that line sticks, like, it, it could be not shooting luck. We'd have to go see the game tape. I mean, we should go look at the highlights of all of Zach Hyman's 21 goals last year and see if he got lucky with some goalies just blowing it sometimes or more often than you'd expect. Or was he just getting like, amazing feeds from Matthews and Marner that we can expect to continue. Those are two, like, can you get, like, better line mates? Maybe there's a couple situations in the league, but really, like, uh, Zach Hyman might be one of the most fortunate third wheels out there in terms of, like, his skill versus the players he plays with. It's a really great spot. So that's one reason why I don't want to count him out completely. Either way, you know, it's a bummer that he doesn't shoot more, I guess, <laughs> because, like, yeah, if he shot more and he could sustain that 20% shooting percentage, he'd be a real fantasy stud. But uh, obviously, there's a reason why he doesn't shoot more, and that's because he's playing with Matthew and Martyr. Yeah, for sure. And we had a comment in the chat here from Jeremy, who, before we started this conversation, was like, Hyman's going to get 30 if he stays on that top line. And then I specifically spoke to how I don't think he's a 34-goal scorer and probably not a 30-goal scorer either. But then Jeremy answered that he feels like the reason Hyman's shooting percentage is so high is because most of his goals are scored from the crease, which is true. Um, if you look at his heat map, he is uh, like smack in front of the net pretty much Anytime he takes a shot. And uh, also, according to Hockey Viz, they have his isolated impact at five on five at a plus 10.5% expected goals per 60 minutes, which suggests that not only is Hyman uh, in that net front role, but he's actually pretty darn good at it. So, uh, like, I wonder, like, I don't know if Thomas Holmstrom is a fair comparison. To be honest, I, ha- I haven't seen enough of Holmstrom recently or to be fair, Hyman probably to to be able to make more of an analogy between the two. But Hyman seems to have some legit skill in then that front role and what he does. And when there is garbage to be picked up, he's able to do it. And uh, the Leafs put a lot of shots on it while he is on the ice. So this is all good news for Hyman and reason to think that, okay, um, Again, like I, I'm still very much in the 50 to 55 point range. I would love for him to prove me wrong. There could be some unseen values still there, but I, I'm sort of with you, Elon, in that, you know, to get those shots, it means other people have to shoot less or there have to be fewer rebounds. And I just, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Yeah, so I don't know. I think we kind of agree, but I, I, I'd lean a bit higher than you, I think, if we were actually putting our numbers down. Oh, let's see what the patrons said for uh, Zach Hyman here. What, what's your prediction for what the patrons projected him for? Uh, well, he had 59 points last season. And if I've figured out the pattern from the projection so far is that the page, like, I mean, and this is what I'd expect from crowdsourced data. It's what a lot of projectors do is like, everyone's just getting regressed a little bit to their mean based on everyone's confidence in how good the season was this year. So I would say that they're thinking Hyman went down. 
uh, I mean, it's hard because I'm colored by my own, but I would say uh, 55 points is where the yep. patrons landed. Close. They had him at 53.5. So oh. right in between 53 and, and 54. I, yeah. I would have said 54 if you had to pin me to a number. So there you go. The patrons and I. I honestly think that this set of projections that the patrons have come up with... It's going to be the best one we've ever had. It's going to be the best one of all projections. Yeah. Like, the Dauber guide is amazing, and those projections are good, but it's just Dauber, right? And there's something about crowdsourcing. Obviously, you still want to get that Dauber guide, but, like, I don't know. I All I want to ask uh, from the patrons is don't stop with your projections, right? Because I think that people have participated a little less recently, I think because we're getting to some more boring players. Like, the the last uh, set included Zach Cassian and Matt Zuccarello and Jacob Silverberg, and I get, like, maybe those guys aren't as exciting to predict as, you know, our uh, Shears and Raquel, whatever, people on the uh, bit of a higher tier, but, you know, we, we got... We need a full set here. So uh, we would definitely appreciate it. You could go back and fill in all the projections. And, you know, one day we're all going to be famous for having come up with this great data set. So you want to be a part of that. But okay. uh, uh, So that is our Hyman discussion. Let's go now to a guy that you already brought up earlier in the show. You were talking about Ryan Strom and saying how his projection depends a lot on his line, a lot like Ryan Nugent Hopkins. So let's get into RNH, another guy we totally blew. Uh, Even though we like him, we, we pegged him for 64 points, which is reasonable. Like he had paced for 69 the year before, 63 the year before that. So we had him, you know, basically around what he had been doing. But then last year actually he started we were like right at the start right he started kind of slow like 15 points in his first 22 games only 11 points in his next 17 games I'm just looking at the quarterlies here but yeah. he exploded at the end of the year he was actually one of the top producers in the league in the second half of the season he ended up with uh let's see here 35 points in 26 games to end the year and you could probably even do something to make him look even better if you find that perfect demarcation point but he exploded and obviously that had to do with dry settle and mcdavid getting split up and dry settle played with nugent hopkins and we all know about the amazing year that drysettle had winning the art ross and the Hart trophy so of course nugent hopkins came along with him but i don't mean to say that in a way like nugent hopkins isn't good like it was just such a great pairing yamamoto joined the ride and he had that amazing uh stretch of games as well and so obviously yeah it's going to be tricky to predict what the lines are going to be next year and maybe the oilers go back to putting mcdavid and drysettle together which isn't great for uh ryan nugent hopkins though hopefully at least yamamoto is good to you know it's better than the types of players he's played with in the past so i hope that even his like floor is higher than it's been before but still uh, i'm curious to know he paced for 77 i know one of our patrons mason who's been participating in slow drafts with me he's been like all over he's been predicting like rnh is going to have like his best career year this year and so are, are you in, a, in agreement with mason or do you think that maybe what he did this past year overall is more what to expect that 77 point pace or is he going to go back down to what we projected him for going into the year which was 64 Okay, that's a that's a lot of questions. No, it's okay. It's, uh, three options. He he does uh, like sixty four, seventy seven, or like eighty five plus. You know, you always ask me a question for like the what, what's your final number, Brian? When you know, you know, like that, I'm gonna have to go. Uh, well, of you course. know, just just hang on a cotton pick and minute there, please, because I'm gonna <laughs> go back to what I said on the almanac. What's that uh, saying? I never heard that saying before. Oh. Does it yeah. take a minute to pick a piece of cotton? I don't know. And I wonder if it's even appropriate in 2020. I don't know. But okay. Uh, well, yeah, I, I say you're a pro, right? It's like, I'm going to ask you a question, but you're going to dance around and tell a whole interesting story and eventually get to the answer. Because if you just answered the question, the podcast would be like 10 minutes long. And I don't think uh, people would like it so much. So maybe, maybe or they'd like it more. Yeah. Just give me the answers. Well, you could uh, become a patron. You get the show notes and you can just like <laughs> browse through really quickly if you want. Uh, okay. 
So here's the story for Ryan Newton Hopkins going into 1920. Uh, what I've been saying for years that Ryan Newton Hopkins is so good that he can turn a couple of so-so line mates into still reasonably okay uh, sources of five-on-five production. And I thought 65 points was a pretty fair pace, thinking that, okay, Nugent Hopkins is going to get 25 power play points, beef that up with maybe 35, 45 on five points. But I was tempted to go under 65 points because uh, looking at who Nugent Hopkins would play with, not with McDavid, not with Dreisaitl, but with James Neal, Zach Cassian, Alex Chieson, Sam Gagne, Marcus Granlund was a name being thrown around preseason 2019. Uh, so like, it just looked really, really dark for Nugent Hopkins not playing with McDavid or Dreisaitl. And it was dark indeed for his first 35 games. Elon, you mentioned his quarterlies where Nugent Hopkins started slow. Uh, That's an understatement. He pays for just 47 points over his first 35 games. 82-game pace of 47 points over his 35 games, which is uh, just an awful, dreadful season. Then Nugent Hopkins played 35 games. And by the way, those first 35 games, he's playing with garbage. I'm not even going to name. Well, it was like Jujar Kyra and someone else. Guys who you obviously can't produce with. But then after those first 35 games of garbage, uh, Nugent Hopkins got set up with Dreisaitl and Kyler Yamamoto. And from that point on, Nugent Hopkins faced for 112 points after that? I I think I double-checked that math. Elon, you told me I got something wrong earlier, but that's crazy. 112-point pace for Ryan Nugent Hopkins over 35 games with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto. So here's what I want to know. If Nugent Hopkins stays with that line, and I kind of think he will because uh, Edmonton added Kyle Torres, right? He'll take care of the third line, hopefully, and allow Nugent Hopkins (laughs) to stay... What? Well, my concern is not as much who's centering the second line. My concern is more like that McDavid and Dreisaitl just get put back together because they do that sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. But I think it, I, I think ideally you have them split and this Dreisaitl again, Moda Nugent Hopkins line is just so good together. So assuming that that line stays together and that's where Nugent Hopkins lands, what was he doing on that line to pace for 112 points over an 82-game season? Well, first, he had an 18% shooting percentage at 5-on-5, five five, which is way too high for him. He had an 84% IPP at 5-on-5 five five compared to his usual 70%. Um, so variance was high for him. But also, Nugent Hopkins was shooting more, shooting more dangerously, and basically more of everything you want to see under the hood for a player. So, um, Which makes sense, because we know Nugent Hopkins is a really good player, so... But what we did see is both his own individual talent and variance exploded in Ryan Nugent Hopkins' favor when he ended up with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto. So now, trying to figure out where he's going to land. 64 points seems low, which is where I was last season. Uh, deployment, deployment is still a huge question mark, of course. And I've already shared my theory that Kyle Torres being added means that frees Nugent Hopkins to be a full-time member of the top six. But that still all feels really hard to predict for me. We know how talented Nugent Hopkins is, but also how much that's a blessing and a curse when he's asked to anchor bad wingers because they have no alternative on their third line center if they don't want that line to just get caved in night after night in whatever minutes they do play. So if tourists can't handle that role, maybe Nugent Hopkins does get stuck doing that business again with no-name line mates. Um, But here's where I land for trying to figure out how many points Nugent Hopkins is going to have in 2021. Uh, I think he can probably manage, Elon, tell me if this is crazy, a 90-point pace with Dreisaitl and Yamamoto, and I'm still going to give him like a 60-point pace 
elsewhere in the lineup. Again, because he'll have that power play production, plus he'll still be able to put up some even strength production regardless of who his line mates are. And then with those two sets of projections based on where he is in deployment, you kind of have to do your own math for how long he's going to spend in each spot to get your final projection. Me, if I esteem a 50-50 split between time in the top six and time on the third line, that puts Nugent Hopkins right around 70 points on the season, 75 points on the season. So that's where I would safely estimate him if I wanted to take a swing and say Nugent Hopkins is going to be in the top six for more than half the year which I'm prepared to do, I would be happy to go above point per game for a Nugent Hopkins and put him around 80 or 85. Right. Okay. So before I, I give my thoughts on those numbers, okay. like, I don't think you're hundred percent correct. And I, very respectfully, of course, like he was never not in the top six. When you're talking about him not playing with good line mates, that was in the top six. It was just McDavid and Dreisaitl were on the top line. And there's unfortunately not that many great players no, on the second line for him to play with. I dis- no, I'm looking at his game by game. Those first 35 games he played, his most common line mate was James Neal. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, Alex Chieson, Jujar Kaira. Yeah, that was Sam the Gagne. second line. I'm saying it was a second. Okay, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Okay, fair enough. This is this is a, a nomenclature argument. I mean, you're you're you are a hundred percent technically right. It's just the Oilers' second line is a third line anywhere else. Right, exactly. So really, what we were talking Playing about with third line wingers. Yeah, is what exactly. I should have said. Okay, so I think that. There's no question that he's going to be the second center on the team. It's I or on the second. Like either he's either McDavid is with Drysaddle and then RNH centers a different line, or Drysaddle centers a separate line, then McDavid and then RNH plays on the wing. I think there's no chance RNH goes out to the bottom six. I don't think that's ever happened. But regardless, the the question really stands. Like you said, is he going to be playing with good players, or does McDavid get Drysaddle and then maybe RNH ends up with kind of scrubs, maybe a little bit better than last year, just because there's like Ennis and you know whatever like a couple other like Pooley RV Yamamoto in the picture so hopefully like better options but obviously okay so now that we've got that just cleared up I like it I, I like what you said I think I'd even go higher like when you said 60 points as his floor I'd even say like 65 as his floor just because that power play just like how amazing I don't know just like did the, you like, just argue one point with me no I said 65 instead of 60 oh okay yeah, you yeah. said a 60.4. Yeah, yeah. I'd say closer okay. to 65. But either way, we're, we're on the same page. It's like, and I think I would also land around a 75-point projection and just hope that he could play with uh, Drysaddle and or McDavid for as long as possible because those guys just keep going up, right? Like, I I don't know. Did you If you have, like, a quick projection of whether you think McDavid or Drysaddle will go down, maybe you could say Drysaddle will go down a little bit. But, like, I think that the Oilers are going to continue to be a super high-scoring team and this RNH is probably going to get in on it, especially on the power play. But if he could get in on it at even strength playing with one of those guys, then it's uh it's great and i'm in agreement with you so i guess we can move on now to Phew. our final three players that we have planned for the show let's go to a trio of defensemen to close things out that we were wrong about i had some players scheduled that we got correct but i guess we'll have to give ourselves kudos on next week's show because i want to make sure we give appropriate time to these three defensemen we've already done a couple on the rangers but there's three more that we got wrong one of them is the one who we discussed having been traded from the rangers to the Winnipeg Jets last year, and that was Neil Pionk, and I think we just assumed that with Bufflin down and with, you know, Truba out of the picture, it was like Josh Morrissey's turn to take over the top power play on Winnipeg. So this was definitely another case of us just, like, guessing the projection wrong, or the deployment wrong, I should say, and that led to us guessing the projection wrong, but I think also we got to give some credit 
to Neil Pionk, who had a really great year, right? Like we projected him for around like 35 points. I had 37, you had 34. In the end, 45 points in 71 games for a 52-point pace. So a fantastic season. He got the great deployment. But correct me if I'm wrong, Like Neil Pionk's sort of story on the Rangers was he was like a sieve defensively. Like He was so bad. Yeah. He was losing the shot share. But I think from different podcasts I listened to, and obviously this is like maybe has to be considered that he was on Winnipeg, who weren't a great possession team. But what I heard is like Pionk actually had a pretty decent year last year. Like He sort of earned the deployment that he got, and he did well, which makes me think he should be able to hold it uh, and, you know, once again, be the top power play defenseman on the team and get big even strength minutes. So, I don't know, right now, before you give your answer, I'll say that currently I'm thinking that Pionk should be able to do this again, which would make him, like, super valuable in fantasy, like some of the other guys we've talked about, because not only does he give you the points and the power play points, but he's good for hits and blocks. So he's, like, a full category coverage guy. So if you're going to tell me that you think he could become a 50-point defenseman again next year, that probably ranks him in, like, your top 10 D ahead of some guys. Like, you get into a conversation at some point of, like, do you take him or Quinn Hughes? You know, and even though you maybe expect Quinn Hughes to get 20 more points, but mainly from assists, you have to look at your league settings and maybe run through a spreadsheet or use Fantasy Hockey Geek or something to really make sure that Hughes is actually more valuable than Pionk just because of all those peripherals. But first, I guess we have to answer, is Pionk actually this 52-point guy that he showed us last year so yeah i was one of those who was really down on neil pionk not loving the trade for winnipeg wondering what they were doing giving away their most defensively responsible player and it showed by the way this year that they lost jacob truba uh, in spades uh, also dustin bufflin was a loss for them too that was unplanned at the time but going to neil pionk specifically i barely even wanted to project him he was like ryan strom because it was like okay um here's a guy who's going to be around maybe he'll get a role because the the jets did give up so much to acquire him and they want to put him in the spotlight and give him every chance to succeed but my worry was that if he gets any kind of role in winnipeg and continues what he was doing from his Rangers days, he was just going to get filled in at five on five, and they wouldn't be able to put him on the ice. And he proved me completely wrong on that. Uh, like I said, the best case scenario for Pionk was that he could be tabbed a power play specialist, someone who gets that top power play role, somehow beats out Josh Morrissey, which seemed impossible at the time, and then is super sheltered at five on five. Uh, he was not a specialist this year. He was an all-around strong player. We did not see coming that Pionk would hold his own at five-on-five. Five. Definitely helped his case all around. He and Dmitry Kulikov were actually a really solid uh, top pair of defensemen on Winnipeg. And Pionk uh, did what not a lot of people can do, is that he mostly survived being paired with Lucas Biza as well for stretches of the season. So some surprising defensive chops from Neil Pionk that we hadn't seen from him as a ranger. And that helped him avoid the fate we feared of getting buried in the lineup. And then some, um, he's different from someone like Adam Fox, um, because Pionk was not a good five on five producer. You might say that's an okay thing because he's too busy playing defense. Uh, and then Pionk made up for it on the power play pacing for 29 power play points over 82 games. And that seemed sustainable for Neil Pionk to be a near 30 power play point player. So look, if he just holds on to those power play points, let's give him about 25, tack on another 20 or 25 points at five on five, just because he's there. And you're basically starting Neil Pionk at 50 points and saying, hey, if you can up your five on five game or get closer to 30 power play points again, uh, you can actually get over and above 
50 points next season. So I think he's a very fantasy relevant player again next year. And I apologize to him for barely wanting to even project him in last year's almanac. <laughs> yeah, like more than fantasy relevant, right? Like we're talking like the shots, the hits, the blocks. You're saying 50 points is a starting point. Like I think he might be the person that people just won't draft high just because he's Neil Pionk and he's like not a big enough name to draft ahead of like, like I said, like a Quinn Hughes or ahead of a Tyson Barry or I don't know, you know, but like it's like be that smart person. Make sure to understand your league settings because he might be like, he's like the Trocheck from a couple years ago or like the JT Miller who rises in rankings because he's got a solid baseline for points and he helps you in like everything else. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, yeah, for a really year, great yeah. all around contributor, like a fantastic Cats League own. And he was, he was rock solid last year. There was a point where he wasn't. He was actually dropped in my cupful division. I kicked myself all year long. I think I lost matchups to the guy who picked him up because of the points he provided his lineup. Like that was the swing and they were critical matchups. And I just couldn't believe I could have added Pionk. He might've even sat unclaimed for two or three days. Um, So that's surprising. A big miss. No, it's not because he wasn't doing anything at five on five. And on the power play was like, well, is it still going to be Josh Morrissey's turn at some point? Uh, but yeah, I won't. Neil Pionk should not find himself on a waiver wire again anytime soon. Yeah, I say it's not surprising because I, my comment to you in the Almanac l- last year was with you being a known Pionk hater, it's kind of fun that he's the last skater we'll be discussing in the Almanac. Give him all you got. So, like going into the year, I acknowledge that you hate Neil Pionk. And every time you talked about him, you talked about how terrible he was. So, obviously, when you saw him dropped, you probably thought, good, he deserves to be in free agency. I'm now. right. It just proves <laughs> me right. <laughs> All right, so a couple more D. Uh, here's someone who's, like, been good before. So I don't know. Like, maybe this, of all the people, I feel like we've had good excuses for everyone else that we projected incorrectly. But this player that I want to bring up now paced for 60 points in 2017-18. So he's shown that he can do it. Then in 2018-19, he had a bit of a down year. He went down to 41-point pace. And we clearly decided, okay, that 41 was more realistic. Maybe we'll give him a little bit of a bump. So you and I projected him for 45 and 46. Can anyone guess? Probably not, right? That's not too much of a clue. But the player I'm talking about is Ryan Ellis, who jumped right back and even beyond his pace from 2017-18, where he paced for 60. And last year, he had 38 points in 49 games for a 64-point pace. And this is on a Nashville team that barely scored. Like, Matt Duchesne, Ryan Johansson, like, even Forsberg and Arvidsson were, like, basically fantasy irrelevant. Maybe not Forsberg, but the rest of them really didn't contribute at all. Uh, obviously, Roman Yosi was amazing, and Ryan Ellis. Those were, like, the two most viable fantasy contributors on the team. Eckholm was even good. So there's something about the defense on Nashville, where they're just getting a ton of the points. And now I guess we need to decide if Ryan Ellis is someone that we're going to finally agree, okay, clearly he is, like, this 60-point guy, like he's shown us in two of the last three years. Or maybe you'll give us a reason to think, okay, two of those years were flukes, but the rest of his career, he's been closer to around 40 points or less. So that's actually where we should peg him. So curious to know if we're going to make the same mistake. I feel like... I feel like almost we can't put him for too much less than 60 just because we're really setting ourselves up to look really bad if we get it wrong. Ryan Ellis is a weird guy to project because his possible range legit is between 40 and 60 points. If you look at his last several years of production, uh, you see paces of 44, 60, 41, 64. And so that means that 2021 is going to see him back to a 40-point pace again if this pattern holds true. Of course, that's not how we do things on Keeping Carlson, though. We look for a little more than that super basic 
pattern, we're going to look under the hood and see why uh, Ryan Ellis got 64 points and why I think it's not sustainable. The first reason is that he had an 11.2% shooting percentage or on ice shooting percentage at five on five, which helped him a lot. He also had a huge IPP on the power play that also helped juice his numbers up above that expected range we have for him uh, between 40 and 60 points. The other side of that variance is that everything else for Ryan Ellis looks a lot like the disappointing season he'd had just one year earlier at 18, in 1819 at five on five. Though the good news there was that his shot rates did recover when we weren't sure they were. So here's a guy who uh, 64 points is not fair to expect, but both 40 points and 60 points are also fair to expect. Um, I'm not really sure where to go with this, to be honest. I have no idea uh, where I'm going to put him. I think what I would do if I'm drafting him is I would just draft him as a 50-point guy, knowing that he could swing higher, he could swing lower. Um, There's really doesn't seem to be a pattern in why he gets... Like, I'm not seeing outside of variance why he's between a 40 and 60 point guy so often. So that's why I would just draft him as a 50 point guy, hoping that where I get him in the draft and having that upside for 60 points makes sense. And having that downside for 40 points is a risk worth taking based on the other available options. I'm trying to like come up. I I don't know if that's a logical answer or not, but that's that's where I'm at with him. The patrons uh, pegged him for 54 on average. So it's a little bit higher than what you're saying. Uh, The thing is, it's interesting, right? Because like I said, Nashville didn't even like, they weren't that good last year and they should have been better. Like uh, Jeremy in the chat saying, okay, but what if Nashville remembers that they're supposed to be good next year? Like what if Philip Fors, like this will be like on our next episode where we talk about players that we were too high on and we'll talk about, I don't know how many of them we could talk about, but like Arvidsson for sure, Duchesne, uh, I guess I just named them before, right? If all these guys do better, you think that would only be good for Ryan Ellis or maybe they're taking points away from him. So that would be an interesting thing to look into, but yeah, I feel like 40 just seems pretty low considering, but he did it a couple of years. Okay. Anyways, I, I, I have nothing to add to what yep. you said, except for <laughs> the pontificate. we have no program. freaking idea about Ryan Ellis. Just I think he's, I, I'm good with the 54. I'm going to agree with the patrons okay. once again. I think I'm always going to agree with the patrons. I, me too. I like that. Actually, I move closer to 54. I, I would say it's more likely he's above 50 than below. But again, I can't see enough of a difference in his underlying numbers between those 40 and 60 point seasons outside of variance. So uh, there you go. And like sometimes like he swings like the, his shot rates, they disappeared, then they reappeared. I don't know why. Shane says Ryan Ellis is consistently the latest picked potential 60 point defenseman. Yeah, so that's <laughs> Shane is good. absolutely right that way. So don't let uh, someone else get him while you're picking like a, a Sergachev or something like already going for your like reaches. Not uh, no, sh- no shade against Sergachev, right? But like, I feel like Sergachev, if he gets 50 points, that would be like a huge win as opposed to Ryan Ellis, where it's like pretty likely, it seems. Uh, by the way, Brian, can you guess what Victor Arvidsson's point pace was last year? Oh, it was bad. I owned him like 49 points. Uh, high, lower. Uh, like 42 lower 35 40 40 he had a tear 28 points in 57 games what a terrible season i hated owning him i eventually traded him away but i should have dropped him long before i did uh so he the previous three seasons he pays for 63 64 and 68 and then totally disappeared so he'll be really okay we definitely need to bring him up next week let's lock that one in we're gonna have to discuss if we think arvidsson is gonna get back he actually had a decent playoffs he was starting to shoot more like because he also stopped shooting what a weird season how did they get matt duchene and then stop scoring like and they, that that's a crazy contract also they have matt duchene on so there's nashville's a lot too- of weird things about nashville like a mm-hmm. lot of very weird things about 
how that team has gone over the last couple of years. And it makes the, the couple of years to come like very murky. I really don't know what to think of them. Also, like they drafted Askarov, which was, I don't know. It's like, obviously everyone says he's going to be like this amazing goalie, but at the same time, like, I don't know. It seems like they need offense at this point. Maybe like they're gold. Like they have Saros. He was pretty good. So I don't know. Yeah, oh, well, but if Saros pans out, then they can always ask around on Askarov for a trade return. Yeah. I'm sure they wouldn't do that, but maybe they could trade Saros. I feel like teams never trade their prospect, like high end prospects, right? It was a bad joke. I oh, I, what was the joke? Yeah. Well, that's, oh, Askarov. Was, oh, it was, ask. Oh, it was I a get. terrible joke. Sorry. Has there been... Okay, so I remember Eric Lindros got traded after he was drafted first overall by Quebec to Philadelphia. Has there ever been a top five pick that you could think of since then that got traded before they played an NHL game? Uh, okay. Uh, question for the listeners. That's a hard that's one. A gr- that's a hard that's one. That's a great trivia question off the top of my head. I can't think of it, but I'd, I'd love to... I, I, there's got to be one. All right, so I'll be curious to know. So before playing an NHL game, a top five pick that didn't uh, that got traded before playing game. So put that out in the universe. Tweeted us at Keeping Carlson. The first person who gets it right, what are we going to do? We'll do so, I'll, I can send you one of these hockey cards. Okay, I've been displaying hockey cards uh, for this episode. You're going to get the whole package of hockey cards that I displayed on the live show if you answer that question. The if whole li- package? I thought you were just going to send, like, the one, the card of the player who matches the description. I mean, these are all worthless cards, right? Like, uh... How dare you? Okay, maybe this is a... I need to look at the uh, mailing cost. It depends where you live, also. If you're, like, live really far away, (laughs) then I might not. I might not do that. So, we have no idea what what Elon will send you. You'll get something. You'll get something. It might be a kudos. It's like when we did our, our pizza draw for the people who submitted the PPP submissions, and Andreas won, who lives in... Was it Norway? Norway? And he was telling us how, like, apparently pizza's really expensive in Norway. So who knows what bill we're going to get. But we promised. That one we promised. So he's going to get his. Also, uh, it was Adam who won the second pizza draw. And we're going to do another pizza draw soon. So keep on uh, submitting those PPP submissions. Okay, what were we talking about? Okay, let's end the show. One more player who we got wrong that I'm super curious about. I just read an article by William Nadeau. I think it was a week ago now. He was on the show a while back talking about goalies. He also, though, knows about other things aside from goalies. Uh, And he projected that Aaron Ekblad is super underrated and he thinks that the best is still yet to come from this guy. And maybe we already saw the start of that this past season because even though Keith Yandel never gets hurt, so Ekblad never gets a shot at the top power play, Ekblad still, from the second power play, had a great year last year. And I feel like we barely talked about him keeping Carlson. I think we maybe didn't bring him up at all, which is kind of a bad on us, right? Because while we projected him for 40 points, just like he's been doing every year, he ended up putting up 41 points in 67 games for a 50-point pace. So a whole 10-point pace higher than what we projected him for. And this is a guy who, if Yandel ever did get hurt, which I don't want to wish something bad on Yandel, or if like Yandel got traded, or whatever. Whatever situation happens where Yandel's gone, I think that Ekblad is next in line for the top power play. And that power play on Florida gets a lot of points. So it's like, this is a, like a stud that we're just, he just needs that chance and he could be huge. And even without the chance, he still was really awesome last year. So do you think at least what he did last year at even strength and like with his second power play time, was that sustainable? So can we now think of him as like a 50 point defenseman with the potential to be huge if he ever got on the top power play? Or do we still have to think of him as like the 40 point defenseman last year was just an aberration? I still okay. Yeah, it's a great question, and that's a 
It's a tough one. Here's the thing with Ekblad is that we never saw him get a chance to be a top power play quarterback for like more than a, a short stretch. But we always did like that he was throwing a lot of pucks on net. The problem is he stopped doing that in 1819 and he didn't really get back to doing it in 1920 either. So those that shot generation that we loved so much about him from like the third season of his career, uh, pretty much is gone. Like he, he's not a big shot producer anymore, which is unfortunate. Also, uh, his minutes haven't gone up in any meaningful way. So like, no, I'm not looking for any sudden offense from Aaron Eckblad. Uh, but here's why he did better this year than we would have projected. First is that his IPP recovered. It was in the dumps for a couple years, down below 30%, which e- like for uh, a top pairing defenseman is low. Uh, It was 45% last year. Usually you're looking uh, in the neighborhood of 35 to 40% IPP. So that's one reason. For two years, it was between 25 and 30%. And that's one of the reasons that Ekblad had fallen off. We weren't sure if he'd get that back somehow. Um, Here's the thing that really, really, really stands out about Ekblad's season last year, though. Aaron Ekblad led all defensemen, we've treated this before, led all defensemen in the NHL in primary assists per 60 minutes, and it wasn't even particularly close. Elon's making his best shocked face right now. <laughs> like, I think somewhat sarcastically, very no, cheeky. Wait, more than John Carlson? Oh my God, you are being cheeky. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm showing how impressive it is. Like, there's, yeah, a big, there's a lot of great defensemen out there. Yeah. And here's the super weird part of it is that usually a defenseman who has a ton of primary assists per 60 minutes is really good at their job. And like they do it year after year. This isn't a stat that's so susceptible to variance. Sure, there is some, but usually if someone's getting a lot of primary assists, they're doing it uh, year in, year out. And it's like, oh, yeah, it's because they're good at getting primary assists and creating goals. But uh, Aaron Eggplant's primary assist rate last season was literally four times his career high number. And like, it's not a big number. Uh, primary assists rates for Eggplant in 2018-19, uh, 0.24 uh, per 60 minutes. Before The year before that, 0.08 primary assists per 60 minutes. This past season, 0.84 primary assists per 60 minutes. I wish I had a better way than decimals to illustrate this. But essentially, uh, if you add up his primary assist rates from every other season, you still don't get to his primary assist rates from just last season, which is crazy. That's not how rates work. Um, don't worry, I know that. But I'm just trying to illustrate just how out of character this was for Aaron Eckblad to accomplish something like this. Not to just beat the whole league, but to destroy himself, his own PB and primary assist. So my only thought here, the only the only guess I can make as to why this happened, is maybe this is a, a Joel Quenville effect. He came in, he, uh, he coached Aaron Eckblad to do something he's never known to do or how to do it or set up a system where Eckblad is making the final pass to set up a goal. And that's the difference. I'm very curious to see if this is something Ekblad can keep up next year. If he can, uh, I'm very open to him being in the neighborhood of like a still boring, like a 45 point producer at most. Um, So still not like a great fantasy option by any means, but I'm very curious to see whether or not Ekblad can continue being a a league leader in primary assists for 60 minutes. 
Yeah, I guess. Is it a concern at all to you, Brian, that Florida might not score as many goals next year? Like just, you know, Dadanov left, Hoffman, let's say he leaves. Uh, then, you know, they don't really have anyone to replace these guys. Like, they've got Patrick Hornfist coming in for Matheson, and then maybe, like, some prospects. You know, uh, Anton Lundell, I've been hearing, might start. He's a former uh, 12th overall pick. Well, actually, just this season was a tw- uh, 12th overall pick, and he might be ready to join, jump up to the NHL. Who knows if he gets... You know, he's a center anyway. So, uh, yeah. all that to say, uh, I don't know if uh, yeah. Florida might just, like, not score as many goals, and that might be a reason why Ekblad maybe doesn't do as well, even if he plays just as well. For sure. Uh, The past three years have been very good for Florida's goal scoring while Ekblad is on the ice. His first three seasons of the league, uh, you know, were were substantially worse. And that's not because of him. It's because of the team around him. So uh, it's really, really, uh, I'm very curious. Like, even if the goals rates do go down for Florida while Ekblad's on the ice, that doesn't necessarily mean that Ekblad will take a huge hit in his primary rates, if he's able to still be a really great uh, shot assister. So yeah. that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm watching for. Yeah, I guess if you're pa- it's easier to get an assist when you're passing it to Mike Hoffman, who's a great finisher, as opposed to if he's passing it to like, I don't know, Alex Wenberg, or uh, the, the, Florida really, because don't forget, they also traded Trocek for Eric Halla at the trade deadline, and Halla's a UFA, and he hasn't been resigned either. So they really don't have a sec, like what? This roster, all of a sudden, this is like a team. Remember when we were when they got Hoffman? Remember how we were like tearing our hair out trying to figure out who was going to get bumped off the top power play because there wasn't enough room for all of these star players. And now I'm seeing Barkov, Huberdo, and like maybe Hornqvist as the top line. Then what? We have Vitrano and either Wenberg or Lundell as as the center of the second line. And then with who? I don't even know. Brett Connolly, Owen Tippett, if he's yeah. ready to play. It's, it's going to be a rough year for Florida. It's going to be a rough year. Uh, poor Alex Barkov, who's capable of so much, is going to be asked to do so, so much. It's not going to be a good year for the Panthers. That is a shame. I did, yeah, I forgot about how they like got rid of their second line center, too. So they've really lost a whole line, right? In terms of if, if they Trocek are down... slash Halla, Hoffman, and... Dadanov. Dadanov, yeah. And they got Hornqvist. Yeah. I still think Hornqvist might be a good sleeper for next year, yeah, for he, what it's if worth. If he gets on the top line, top power play, sure. I mean, he doesn't have that much competition. All right, no. so... <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, Ekblad will always have competition for the top power play because Yandel is great at that job and is the Iron Man of Iron Man. Uh, my favorite stat is that he even has more games played over the last, uh, like, 10 seasons than he even should because there was one year where he played 83 games because he got traded midway through and got an extra game when he got traded from the Rangers to the Panthers. That's how good Keith Yandel is. But all right, right, that's the show. That was a blast. So much fun. I, I, I know I say that all the time. I, I mean it. I, I've had a really good time. The time has flown by. But I think now it's time for us to say goodbye. Let me go ahead and replace the uh, Aaron Ekblad card that's displayed with an awesome-looking Eric Carlson card, because he should be the one to see us out. And I'll say to people listening... Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we appreciate it. And once again, like I said before, we'd love your subscription so that you could get these episodes. We're going to keep bringing you episodes every week. we got a big plan for the preseason. No matter how long the preseason in like is, we've got shows ready for you. And then obviously once the actual preseason starts and there's actual games and data, that'll be a lot of fun. That's kind of our bread and butter, right, Brian? Like all of this projecting is fun, but Keeping Carlson is all about every week coming on, talking about what happened in the past week, and then talking about if we think these players can do it and if you should be adding or dropping these players. So I can't wait to do that. It feels like it's been forever since we've been doing shows like that. But in the meantime, yeah, 
We appreciate your listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks to everyone who joined us in the live chat. You can join us every week live. We start at 7.45 p.m. Eastern time at keepingcarlson.com slash live. Uh, we have our Patreon program in full swing. Oh, we have a, a kind of an announcement for the Patreon program about the Discord. Should we drop okay. that? Drop so, it. Announcement. Okay, so... Uh, I, if, for those of you who've been around a long time or that are, are patrons for a long time or not, you've, we've talked about our patron-only Facebook group. We are uh, planning on slowly migrating away from Facebook and towards our Discord server, which has been like really fun over the summer. We've been spending a lot of time on the Discord, and we think that is our, that's the future of the Keeping Carlson patron community is over on Discord. We actually have some big plans for anyone who's like, kind of checked it out and found it like maybe too overwhelming. Like You're not used to this kind of system where it's more of like a... What would you call it? Like Facebook is more like there's one post at a time. This is more of a free-flowing chat with like, lots of different rooms where people are doing chats in. And uh, we, we have a plan, which we're going to be rolling out very soon, to make it a lot more straightforward for people to join and just like see the rooms that they want. Also, I'm going to be recording a video with one of a uh, big friend of the podcast, Ryan McLaughlin. He and I are going to record a video uh, explaining like for new people how to like get acquainted with the Discord. So, you know, we got a whole rollout for this. But uh, yeah, so... That's one fun thing about if you become a patron, you could be a pioneer of our Discord server. And what else? A lot of stuff. We've talked about a bunch of different patron perks. So how about at this point, I'll just say, go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron. I guess I'll mention one more, which is the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. And the sign-up deadline is like very soon. Like, if you haven't signed up yet, please do so if you want to play. Because if the NHL does start on January 1st, we got to get these slow drafts going. So we're going to make the sign-up deadline something like uh, December 5th is our current date. And we might push it depending on what the NHL does. Uh, so anyone who signs up gets to play in the couple you start in the bottom tier and then depending on how well you do next season who knows how high you'll be in a couple seasons and before you know it you'll be in tier one competing with myself and dave Betton, and of course max the current tier one ultimate champion and a bunch of things probably brian probably i won't be there anymore because i'll have been demoted by then and brian will be back there but anyways it's fun so again keep slash patron for all the details i'm gonna let you go okay so let's cue the outro music and brian why don't you go ahead and read us the credits all right. This episode of the Keeman Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and powered by our patrons. Logo art by Brandon Weeb. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, and Roto World. Great job, as always, Brian. I'm looking forward to talk to you next week. We're just going to go over some more of our projections, maybe give ourselves some more kudos of things we got right, and then talk about some players who are on the opposite side, people who we were uh, too high on, we thought would be good, and they turned out being bad. This episode was all players who we thought would be bad, and they turned out being really good. Yeah, next, uh, looking forward to doing that next time, and also, of course, naming the guys that we actually got right. We were right on some of them, just so you know, but like I said at the top, we like to hold it. We we have to learn from our mistakes. Do you know what fail stands for, Elon? Uh, fa- uh, f- fairly, always, individual, losing. Nope. First okay. attempt in learning. Ah, Bam. I like that. That's very good. Put that uh, yeah. on your wall. Well, I think that the thing we've learned is that you and I shouldn't make projections on our own. We should get the patrons to crowdsource it, and that's going to be step one. And then next week's, next year's episode will be very interesting to do this exact same thing, but we'll be referencing our PPP results, the Patron Projection Project results, and seeing what the patrons got right or wrong, so we won't have to take any more blame or accountability. Just cannot wait to take no more blame or accountability. Until then, as is our Patron Projection Project, fantasy hockey is for everyone. <laughs>